try to track as much as you can in terms of your health parameters, be it your heart rate, your blood biomarkers, if you can. DNA is obviously, as we talked about here, very important to give you uh, a lot of biological context. Of course, um, if I were to choose one intervention, it would be vigorous physical activity. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Gil Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, how to live a longer, healthier life. We are produced by InstaTracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Bartek Nugal. Bartek holds a bachelor and master degree in biological engineering from Cornell University. Following the completion of his master's degree, Bartek worked in the biotech industry for nine years, contributing as a process development engineer. He purchased a PhD in the Structural and Computational Biology program at Script Research. During his doctoral studies, Bartek employed a biophysical approach utilizing cryo-electron microscopy to understand the mysteries of naturalizing antibody response to HIV vaccine immunogens. His research resulted in a numerous peer-reviewed publication, including contribution to the journal Cell. Furthermore, his doctoral thesis work received recognition and made the cover of the March issue of Cell Report. Bartek joined the InstaTracker team as a scientist five years ago and worked in, in many different positions in the science team and in the last several years lead the genetic genomic team. Welcome to the show, Bartek. Glad to be here, Gil. Excellent. So, uh, Bartek, before we start and dive into genomic and genetics, I would like to learn more about your uh, um, background and specifically what uh, led you to become a scientist. Yeah, I think um, I think it's a pretty simple and pretty simple story. I I grew up uh, just being really interested in, in the life around me. Uh, as a kid, I surrounded myself with animals. I spent a bunch of my summers just hanging out in pet stores and helping store owners with tropical fish and stuff like that. I had, you know, multiple multiple types of animals at home at one point. Um, I was actually uh, breeding hamsters. I had over 40 hamsters at home. I had guinea pigs, tortoises, anything I could catch like salamanders, newts. Um, any injured bird I would bring into the house. And so I was on, on track to uh, what I thought would be a career in veterinary medicine. Um, and I kind of kept that dream alive until um, I started in, uh, in my undergrad program. And that's actually was the main reason why I uh, sought out Cornell because it has a really good world-renowned veterinary school. But really quickly into... Uh, my freshman year, I started discovering the molecular side of life, uh, bioengineering, molecular medicine, and that really piqued my interest then. Um, and I made the decision to actually transition into those finer details of biology 
um, as opposed to veterinary medicine. That's sort of the story. It's a good story, a very interesting story. And uh, another point that I think that it will be interesting for our audience to, to know is uh, you are part of the InstaTracker Science team. So I think that it will be uh, interesting for the audience to know why have you decided uh, uh, to move uh, from the academia to the industry and not, why have you decided to, to join InstaTracker? Yeah, um, so I, I really love the idea of application of knowledge into something that's usable um, and actually can make a change. In the case of Inside Tracker, it, Inside Tracker always really aligned with my lifestyle. So it was a natural transition, kind of emerge, if you will, of uh, the kind of life that I was living with, um, with the type of work that Inside Tracker was pursuing. So it was a kind of a natural marriage of what I was doing anyway in life. Cool, thank you. And uh, just a side story, I remember when uh, uh, Bartek actually joined us as a writer. He, we were looking for someone to write a blog about uh, SHBG, sex hormone binding globally. And uh, uh, I got introduced to Bartek by uh, one of our team members. And he wrote an amazing blog. It was like uh, 50 pages. It was almost a book. And we had to make it shorter and shorter. I don't, I don't remember, Bartek, if you remember that. And then I, uh, I was, I was really impressed by the, uh, by the blog that he wrote. And I said, "Hey, do you want to write another blog?" And he said, "No, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not for writing a blog. I want to do a real science." So he started to join us, and uh, it was during his uh, graduate study, and uh, we, we got really impressed by uh, his capabilities. And uh, uh, together, we decided uh, that he should join us full time. And uh, since then, everything is history. So first. Uh, Thank you so much for joining the team, Botek. Thank um, you. It's been a fun journey. But we uh, we are here not to talk about Insta Tracker and about uh, uh, your history or my story. It's more about uh, uh, genetics and uh, uh, and DNA. So um, I would like to start with the basic and uh, maybe even uh, uh, the super basic. So can you define what is DNA and what is his role and what is it doing and the uh, how can a audience that is not a PhD understand the, the basic? Okay, yeah, so DNA is a biological polymer that happens to be the code that kind of uh, determines uh, who we are as people. Uh, and so uh, it essentially contains information to make uh, the functional units of makes a human a human and an animal, any kind of animal or plant, that kind of entity. So uh, the central dogma of biology is uh, DNA makes this other molecule called RNA. And then from RNA, we translate it into protein. And proteins are the, the business end of the dogma, where they are actually the enzymes and the structure building blocks of what makes your skin, what makes your organs, uh, what makes your muscle tissue, uh, and everything else that makes composes life um so yeah that's that's sort of uh the basics of of dna thank you and uh, just for a reference if you look at the dna of let's say a mice versus a human how much of it is similar and how much of that is difference between us and the mice uh so i actually don't know the exact overlap 
But I, I can tell you something maybe closer to us where uh, if you look at a chimpanzee and a human, the overlap is about 98%. So uh, a, a mouse might be, it's probably something downward from there, but it's probably would still surprise the li listeners that how high it actually is, even if you compare it to, you know, something simple. Yeah, so as much as I remember, it's around 95%, and you said chimpanzee is 98%. So for the audience, think about it. Only 2% of our DNA is different between us and chimpanzee, and still we are so different. So the difference that we see are localizing only 2% of the genome, which is really fascinating. Um, and maybe that's a good segue to talk about a SNP or single nucleotide polymorphism. Maybe you should explain that and what does it mean and uh, what can you do with that? Yeah, so SNPs are uh, sort of the go-to variation for uh, determining uh, uh, polygenic predisposition to particular health traits. Um, and they are the point uh, mutations that develop over, over time in population, uh, usually as an adaptation to uh, the environment. So depending on where a population lives or where it migrates, it might develop SNPs to better absorb something from the soil because maybe that soil is not rich enough in some minerals. So you have to increase your capacity to enrich for that minerals from foodstuffs. Or uh, maybe you're not, you're in an environment where uh, you transitioned out of, say, sub-Saharan sub Africa back in the day, and now you're in somewhere in Scandinavia and you get half the amount of sunlight or less, and now your skin is not able to produce as much vitamin D. So over, over millennia, over generations, it's, uh, it behooves that population to evolve, to be able to adapt to the environment, to prevent, you know, uh, fractures and, and improve bone mineral density, to be able to, uh, to absorb efficiently, uh, from vitamin, you know, the sun rays in order, in order to be able to produce vitamin D you know, in the skin, in an environment that doesn't, it doesn't have as much sunlight. And there's, you know, thousands or, or actually probably, you know, millions of examples if you want to talk about SNPs of those types of um, adaptations. So we have in our genome millions of SNPs that basically that's what make Bartek different than Gil and uh, Bartek different from any other human. And then the, the question is, uh, should we look at a specific SNP or should we look at them uh, in aggregate and basically make score? And if we're making score, how do we do that? Yeah, so so there's, so there's we can break that question up into two, let's, let's say a two level, to, uh, on a high level, two, two parts. There are so-called monogenic or Mendelian types of conditions or syndromes or diseases where a single gene variant can have very, a very strong effect. It's, it's so-called very penetrant. So something like Tay-Sachs or Huntington's disease, those are the types of things that we screen newborns for, even uh, prenatally. Uh, so those, those single mutations can, uh, can be enough and are enough to diagnose because those are diagnostic. When we talk about uh, health traits, which is what Inside Tracker uh, furnishes for users, we are talking about complex traits that are uh, best assessed by these so-called polygenic scores, where uh, in a genome-wide fashion, 
we survey uh, SNPs that are significant, statistically significant in, in their association with a particular trait like, for example, LDL level. So um, the more of those SNPs you have typically, the more of, uh, the more your predictive ability goes up uh, for a particular polygenic score. So um, the state of the art right now for complex, uh, particularly predispositions to health traits are polygenic score and not single gene variants, just because uh, the technology is such that it's relatively inexpensive to uh, you know, genotype or even nowadays do whole genome sequencing to be able to calculate those polygenic scores uh, for people. And the way a polygenic score is calculated, you're basically, it's a weighted sum. Let's say you have, uh, we can use uh, one of the new scores, a bone mineral density that's about 900 locations in the DNA that associate with having a lower or, high or higher bone mineral density. And those were found in a so-called genome-wide association study. And from there, some of the statistical uh, inferences that are made, you, you get uh, an effect size uh, that allows you to weight any particular location on the DNA in terms of how much effect it has on the trait, in this case, that being bone mineral density, and you create a weighted sum. It's pretty simple of, of those effect sizes, and you, you, know, you come up with a you know, single value that then can be used to compare you to the population. And in, in that sense, it gives you context where you are on the spectrum for risk for lower bone mineral density, for example. Okay, so let me see if I understood you correctly. What you're saying is the following. Uh, uh, polygenic scores is basically a uh, scientist makes, make an experiment, and let's take uh, the LDL, as you mentioned before. So they can look at a big population, let's say 10,000 people, and uh, they know the level of the uh, LDL for all of them. And then they are trying to take, uh, let's say, the, uh, the top 10% and the bottom 10% and try to see what are the single nucleotide polymorphisms that are different between them. And then based on that, they calculate a score and come saying, well, those 50 or 100 or 200 are the single nucleotide polymorphisms that differentiate between those two uh, groups. And then they, they come and say, if someone have this uh, kind of uh, allele of those SNPs, they are a uh, high risk for LDL versus the other one is low risk. That's a fair assessment or am I making I, I think, mistakes? I th yeah, I think what you, what you described is more of a classic uh, GWAS for uh, a disease, a presence or absence of disease. When, when we're looking at LDL as a con continuous variable, you basically say you have, say the UK Biobank, you say you have 500,000 people for each person, mm -hmm. you have their DNA array data, you have their LDL measurement, and you run a linear regression uh, to find out which of the genetic variants on those arrays for each person associates with LDL. And from there, uh, you calculate, you, you, you basically create the so-called Manhattan plot, and it tells you which SNPs are important. And from those SNPs, you're able to do a bunch of statistical manipulation, only take out the ones that are not redundant, um, and from there, you can calculate a score. And then, yes, when, when you have the yeah. distribution for the score, you can create percentiles to be, to, to be able to tell people, say, the people who are in the lowest 10%, they're at low risk. People are at the highest 10%, uh, they're at higher risk. 
Good. Thank you. Thank you for the explanation. I think that it's a very important point for our audience to understand how we calculate those uh, polygenic scores. So now my next question is, uh, those polygenic scores, what percentage of your, let's say, the level of LDL or the, your bone mineral density they explain versus uh, other things like environment and behavior and so on? Uh, can you provide a few examples just for users to, or listeners to understand what is the ballpark of the explanation? Yeah, so maybe what I'll what I use is uh, basically I'll try to uh, I'll try to explain heritability because essentially we that is what we're talking about. So the concept of heritability um, can be a little bit tricky. So when you have something like ApoB, so for example, if we say that uh, ApoB is fifty percent heritable, it does not mean that fifty percent of Gill's ApoB is due to genetics. It means that if we look at, um, say, 10 people or a number, a different number of people, and we measure all of their ApoB levels, the variation that we find out from, let's say, their, let's say the average for those 10 people in ApoB is 100 milligrams per deciliter. And let's say the variance is plus minus five. So if we say that uh, heritability is 50%, we can say that 50% of that variation is due to genetics. So, so again, it doesn't mean that on an individual level, 50% of your ApoB or LDL level comes from genetics. It means it's a population metric that measured at a particular population at a specific time uh, is some number. And yeah, it can change over time depending on um, uh, how we measure it and what technology we use. Uh, so it's a, it's a ballpark. It's not an, an absolute value. I'll give you an example. For example, I kind of like to use this. Uh, suppose we have a polygenic score for uh, um, body mass index, BMI, so how, how heavy you are. And we have this polygenic score um, in, a, in the U.S. population where uh, food is freely available. People have access to as much food as they want, pretty much, because you can, let's say not food, but let's say calories, right? Uh, now you have the same polygenic score, and that's for, for the sake of argument, let's say the, uh, the genetic background of another, say, third world country is the same as the population we're measuring uh, in the U.S. But now this third world country is going through a famine. Now the genetics of these people are the same. But if you run those scores on them and you measure their weight, you're not going to get the same heritability. So because the environment isn't allowing for that heritability to express itself. So that sort of kind of gives you an example, an extreme example of how what heritability can, is and is not, right? Uh, same thing with, for example, like a, like a solid psychological variable like IQ. So if IQ is 50% heritable, it doesn't mean if you score, Gil, if you score 160, it doesn't mean that 80% of, uh, 80, 80 of those points are due to genes. It, it just means that if you get 10 people, the variation, whatever variation is within their IQ, 50% of that is, is genetic. Yeah, so it's looking at the population. It's not a, yeah. a fit for Botecogil. It's for yeah. population, but it's give us the, provide the ballpark. So you spoke yeah. about uh, ApoB and you said that it can be up to 50%. But that's an extreme, correct? Like, uh, let's say... Yeah, so uh, those... Yes. Um, so those heritability estimates are, are based on uh, the broad-based heritability, where you're able to 
take a set of monozygotic and dizygotic twins, you know, track them over time and then adjust for confounders and see what's the using some structure equation modeling, you can figure out what the heritability is. That's the ceiling because you're accounting for all of the genetics without measuring any genetics because you're looking at twin. You have a controlled experiment, a controlled natural experiment. Um, when you, you can also calculate heritability from the latest technology through array technology, but those arrays only capture, for the most part, common variants. They don't capture anything that's super rare, like, say, less than 1% uh, frequency for a particular allele. Uh, and so uh, when you're trying to measure, when you're measuring uh, heritability or the variance explained using that kind of technology, you, you only get a portion of the true heritability. And so the, the other kind of the, 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 the gap is called the, the question of missing heritability. And, and that's still kind of a controversial topic where most of that missing heritability is coming from. But in general, uh, people think that it's due to these rare causal large effect size variants that would help close the gap. Once we're able to whole genome sequence millions of people uh, which is very expensive. That's why we haven't done it yet. At that point, in theory, we would be approaching for ApoB the same heritability that we can see with like twin-based study. Um, okay. Now, the, well, uh, when when we have a polygenic score for something like ApoB, and we have at Inside Tracker, we have the benefit of actually having our users both their DNA data and their blood data. We can run a linear regression on that and get an estimate of the variance explained by the polygenic score. And because ApoB is known to be, you know, highly, highly heritable, we do in fact reproduce uh, qualitatively that we actually do see double digit explained variance in the ApoB. And to give you some context, so when our score right now explains about 14% of the variance in our users' ApoB, uh, so in plain English, when we look at the bottom 10% of the distribution for the polygenic score, our average users' ApoB levels is about 77 mg per deciliter. Now, when we compare that to the upper 10% for ApoB, so people at highest risk of ApoB levels, their, uh, their ApoB levels are closer to 110 mg per deciliter. So that gives you an idea what 14% heritability can do. And so I, I'm, I, don't, I don't have the numbers with me, but I'm pretty sure that 80% mix per deciliter is way below the 50th percentile for ApoB levels. And 110 yeah. is up there in, in you know, a generally healthy population in terms of what ApoB, uh, where it falls. Excellent. And if we were stay with uh, uh, ApoB, for example, so, okay, so um, the question is, uh, so what? So I know that I have a high risk for a high, high genetic risk, let's say, for high ApoB. What a, a practical decision that can uh, support? What can I do with this data? Yeah, so um, first of all, anything I say from now on is not medical advice. It's just inference, inferences from the best scientific, the latest scientific literature that I am personally familiar with, and I'm also going to draw, extrapolate from where we have more data, which is LDL, which is very closely tied. The polygenic risk score for ApoB and LDL are very closely tied. If you plot them together, they're essentially, you know, a very high correlation. Um, 
So, so when you have a high polygenic uh, risk for ApoB, um, now are you saying that with also having information about your blood levels or? Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's okay. let's assume that yes, I have the okay, blood so, data of my ApoB and I have my DNA risk. What can I do with that? Yeah. So in general, it gives you an idea of either how good you're doing in terms of your lifestyle. Uh, so if you have a high risk, but your uh, ApoB level is you know low, then you're probably doing something really really good in terms of your lifestyle. If they match, then you're basically uh, living up to your genetic potential. But there's also, and this is where I was uh, alluding to, um, there's also an element of polygenic score that doesn't just tell us what the level of the biomarker is. There is some inherent, very deep biological insights that are, go far and beyond what, the, uh, what its, its prediction of the blood biomarker. I'll give you uh, an example with, with LDL that's been published in, in the literature and while this hasn't been necessarily reproduced explicitly with ApoB, but it, it, it's likely that's very similar because the biological pathways be be behind ApoB and LDL could be similar in terms of their effect on uh, cardiovascular disease. So when when you look at um, individuals who are at lower risk for LDL levels versus medium risk for LDL genetic risk for LDL levels, and those who are high, a person who is say has uh, their LDL is a uh, 110 mix per deciliter. 110 is below the clinical threshold for, right? I'm just trying to use a, a number that makes sense. Uh, yeah. And they are at high risk. Their risk of uh, cardiovascular events, so the odds ratio of having a cardiovascular event at 110 is much, much higher than a person who has an LDL of the same 110 and has low genetic risk. So this is really the, the definition of precision health medicine, right? Because you're not just looking at the polygenic score to tell you where your LDL should fall. But the, even if you, if you have a polygenic risk score that's high for LDL, but your LDL is, is low you know, or not, not enough, you know, it's the same as a person with a high risk, uh, that risk of a cardiovascular event is different if you have the polygenic background. Um, yeah. So, so, all... so, 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 I'm I'm trying to summarize it and uh, yeah. actually say it in my world. What what you are saying is you can look at the at the real number of the LDL and the risk of LDL as a different indication. So, a person that have a currently, let's say, a LDL score of 110, but he have a high risk for having high LDL. Basically, you have two indications. One is the genetic is potential is to have high LDL, but now his LDL is okay, which is good. But he's still in a higher risk to have higher LDL than someone that have the same level of LDL uh, blood uh, level, but lower risk of LDL, meaning that uh, blood and genetic together are much more powerful than having only the blood data or the DNA data alone. Is it fair what I said so far? Yeah, I think, I think, I think you, you got the concept, but what I mean, uh, when, so L basically LD love biomarker levels for LDL when in the, with the polygenic risk background are not created equal for people with different genetic risk. And what we're talking about the risk of cardiovascular events. So yes. regardless of basically to summarize, regardless of LDL levels to a point, 
if your polygenic risk for higher LDL is high, you always will have a higher risk for cardiovascular events. So that's where you kind of have to, even if you modify, this is where if you, even if you're able to modify to a point, your LD levels via lifestyle, but your genetic risk is high, it would still, and this goes maybe for ApoB as well, it would still behoove you to have a, a serious conversation with your physician about the other thing that's not measurable yet. And that's future cardiovascular events. Because like I said, these polygenic scores, especially for lipids, they don't just capture um, th the math behind what calculates an LDL. They capture a lot of biology that relates to epithelial you know, health um, and all kinds of you know, um, resistance to stress, different uh, cellular differentiation, things that relate to health span overall and in particular heart health. Yeah, but it's a, that's, that's, a, that's a fair point, Bartek, but uh, I'm still a, a, a trying to uh, communicate the following message, and I would like to be sure that uh, you agree with yes. me, that someone that have higher, higher PGS score for uh, LDL should take uh, the, his real LDL level, the blood level, more serious than someone that have a lower risk because uh, he's basically yes. in higher risk and then he, yeah. he, he should maintain his LDL as low as possible because he already That's has a high risk. I would agree yeah. with that. You would be, you should be, regardless of the number, you should be as aggressive as possible yeah. if you, yeah. if you have that. Yeah. Okay. And actually and, it's, yeah, I was going to say, um, if we're talking about lipid levels, um, familiar, familiar hypercholesterolemia, that's not something we look at in Inside Tracker because it's a, it's a more of a monogenic, highly kind of diagnostic trait, but it also shows, so familiar hypercholesterolemia is not, it's very penetrant, meaning if you have uh, the genetics behind it, you're more likely to have super high cholesterol early on, but it's not a hundred percent penetrant. And what research is actually uncovering is some of that missing penetrance, it can be explained by polygenic scores and the same kind of polygenic scores that you, you can measure in healthy people, meaning people who have the FH genes and should have high cholesterol don't, they could have a very low polygenic score to help protect them from it penetrating, meaning expressing in the form of the phenotype of having very, very high LDL cholesterol. Excellent. So, so I think that we uh, spent some time, but I think that we we at least try to explain. And again, it's very complex. So hopefully, we we have been uh, uh, clear enough. We try to explain the combination of blood and DNA together, and why it's uh, better to uh, to measure both and not only blood or only DNA, which is great. What I would like uh, uh, to discuss right now is uh, uh, what. Uh, other genetic uh, score in tracker is currently tested other than the DNA score for high level of uh, LDL or high level of glucose. What are other traits that we are uh, testing and why? Um, so at, right now we're looking at a, a bunch of polygenic scores for uh, most of our blood biomarkers, not all of them. We have uh, a lot more in the pipeline and it's really, really soon we will be unfolding uh, between nine and 10 brand new scores that are specifically related to health span traits. Um, and those, those are things that are very important for um, healthy aging and uh, you know, increasing the disease-free portion of, of a person's lifespan. Excellent. So, and, uh, 
And we'll uh, spend the majority of this discussion today about those 10, which I'm uh, super excited about. And, and I assume that you are also super excited about that. But uh, what is, uh, if, you, if I will ask you, and I will ask you, to say which one of them is the one that Bartek is most excited about? Which one is it? Oh, um, you know, I would say it would be the one uh, where we can interrogate using our own inter internal data, and that would be ApoB, because we okay. do have ApoB measured, so we're able to actually validate it internally and really vouch for its really good predictive ability. Uh, but all the other ones I'm also very excited about just because of the, you know, the research that went into coming up with these scores. One of the criteria was that all those traits are uh, have a good uh, proportion of heritability such that when, when we're giving you um, a rating for a genetic risk, it, it's, it's, not, um, it, it's actually meaningful uh, because genetics is contributing to that trait. So can you Bartek, elaborate a bit about that? What, uh, how many studies do you need in order to decide that we are adding this score? Uh, how many, what was the end number, the minimum end number? Uh, what should be the effect size? If you can uh, 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 discuss a bit about that, that would be, I think, very beneficial. Sure. Yeah. So the beauty of the human genomics field is that data is very freely available and it's shared among um, not just academics, but it's freely available on different repositories. Um, there are multiple different repositories. A lot of them tap into the largest study worldwide right now, which is the UK Biobank, which is uh, you know, a gener generally healthy uh, population uh, of people between, in, between in their 40s to 70s. And uh, that research study basically went ham on uh, phenotyping these people in, in many times in, in longitudinally. Uh, and uh, when researchers apply to look at that study, they publish their genome-wide uh, study findings. And then uh, people like ourselves can go into these repositories, look at the GWAS statistics, GWAS meaning genome-wide association study, uh, and we're able to um, extract the most significant variance for a particular trait. So uh, when we look at um, uh, the discovery GWAS behind the polygenic score, we look at... Um, uh, a study size of at least um, in the tens of thousands of people. Uh, for the most part, it's in the hundreds of thousands of people, but some of these, some of the uh, traits that are health span traits uh, are maybe uh, not as well represented. So uh, oftentimes, uh, sometimes we'll, we'll find studies that are maybe more like 70,000 people. Uh, and we also look for meta-analyses, which is a way to combine multiple GWAS to increase your sample size and then also to increase your ability to discover more variants with a larger sample size. Um, so that's kind of the process. We look at uh, different GWAS summary statistic repositories um, and we uh, extract the most significant variants for particular traits uh, based on those uh, repositories. And when we when it is a trait such as ApoB or LDL or hemoglobin A1C or fasting glucose, these are traits that we measure within our population. These are trait uh, polygenic scores that we can internally validate. So by that I mean we can take our users' anonymous DNA, 
match them to their anonymous blood data, and then uh, run a so-called linear regression to see if that polygenic score that we're trying to discover is actually predicting um, the blood blood biomarker in our in our user. And if it's not, we iterate. We go to the next score, or we look at different variants until we get an optimal uh, prediction for where we can get. Um, because um, there is a, a so-called concept of transferability of, of scores. Just because a GWAL was run in a particular population and it explained uh, a certain proportion of variance in that population where it was discovered, it doesn't mean that if you transfer it to uh, a different set of people, it doesn't mean that it will be as good at predicting. And typically it's a little different. So that's how we have to, a lot of research goes into it to make sure that um, we're, we're uh, generating insights that are actually valid and insightful for a user and more likely to be predictive of where people are. As a Longevity by Design podcast listener, you understand the value of improving your health for today and for all the years ahead. And if you want to live your healthiest, longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside. At Inside Tracker, we take a personalized approach to health span optimization that eliminates guesswork from your wellness plan. Inside Tracker analyzes blood biomarker and DNA data, along with physiomarker data from fitness trackers like Aura Ring, to deliver personalized food, supplement, lifestyle, and exercise recommendations that allow you to take control and improve your health span. And for a limited time, Longevity by Design listeners can get 20% off at the Inside Tracker store. So if you're ready to receive a personal health analysis and data-driven wellness plan to optimize your body for the long haul, then it's time to start inside. Visit insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. That's insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. Got it. That's good. And uh, just to explain to our audience, uh, uh, how many uh, uh, SNPs uh, uh, you have in a uh, I would say in a average or a, a normal or a, a example, because it's very dramatically, but let's take the upper B that you discussed before. How many SNPs are included in a, this score of upper B? Yeah, so uh, the score we converged on, we looked at about four, or f uh, maybe three or four different scores, and they were between, say, 100 to... Um, maybe in the hundreds of thousands of SNPs, but the most manageable and the most predictive score that turned out to be most predictive in our population was a score that's about 17,000 genetic variants. Yeah. So when, so basically yeah. when a user uploads their DNA to Inside Tracker, we look at their, you know, we look at their array. We have this so-called imputation algorithm where we're able to infer missing links and we're able to come up with those 17,000 for that user and then use those uh, variants to do the summed average weighted by the effect size for that user so they get a number and a risk score that they see in, in the app. So the non-scientific uh, uh, listener, uh, we are looking at uh, thousands, if tens of thousands different location in the DNA that they are responsible for your risk to have a low or high a, a upper B. So it's a very big score with a lot of information that allow us a, a pretty accuracy to predict how yeah. likely you are to have a, a upper B just based on your DNA, not looking at the environment and not looking at the other thing, which is uh, maybe a, a, was a magic, a, a, I don't know, five or 10 years ago, today is doable and uh, we are doing it and we are doing it based on 
a very strong science that uh, was published in the best uh, scientific journals and was done on a, a, a very good uh, database that called uh, the UK uh, Biobank. Um, so uh, I think that that's a, a very good uh, background uh, information, Bartek. And uh, now with your permission, I would like to go specifically for a, a, a specific a, a, a scores, but maybe uh, bef before that, maybe uh, either you or myself uh, can mention just uh, what are the scores that we are currently adding for a, a, what we call a, a DNA a health span scores, and uh, maybe yeah. why uh, in a I don't know in a sentence or two for each of them. Yeah, yeah. So you would think I have them memorized, so I I do have a list here. Let me. So let me start with, um, so they're all, so they were all, uh, we all identified, they were identified based on a few criteria. Uh, one of them uh, being, is it related to health span? Um, and the other, one of the other ones, again, are they actually heritable? So we wouldn't pick a score that's, um, we wouldn't pick a trait that's, uh, I can't think of one, but one that's uh, health span related, but there's no evidence that it's explained by genetics. It just wouldn't make sense. We could. We could come up with something, but it would not be very predictive in our users. So I'm going to start with um, visceral fat. Uh, so visceral fat uh, is, is, a, is a type of meta metabolically unhealthy fat that tends to surround the organs. Um, it tends to be correlated with having a bigger waistline. It's actually an independent predictor of metabolic disease, regardless of any other blood biomarkers. And it's also kind of a silent, if you think about it, it could be a silent killer. If it's something... It's not something you go and you get measured unless you get like a DEXA scan where you want to look at your bone mineral density or body fat percentage. I think that's like a secondary measure that uh, you, you can derive from there. But most people, and you know, including myself, I don't know what my visceral fat is. I'm, I'm relatively lean, uh, but I actually happen to have a high risk for increased visceral fat. So that's making me actually think like maybe I should invest a hundred bucks and go get a DEXA scan because I know my lifestyle is pretty good. And you know, typically I look healthy. But what if that risk, I actually haven't modified it enough and I have to think about it. So visceral fat is, is a nice one because, again, it's, there's not a readily available biomarker for it. You actually, it's, you have to go out of your way to, uh, to see it. Yeah, and Bautek, let, let's say just a, a comment about visceral fat. So I think that that's a great example. And uh, I uh, done a, a DEXA scan a, a few months ago. And I was uh, shocked that I have a uh, high uh, visceral fat and I didn't know about it. By the way, I don't know yet what is my uh, risk score for visceral fat uh, because I, uh, we haven't released yet the, uh, the DNA score. But uh, that's, a, that's a great example of uh, something that you can uh, test the DNA and see if you have high risk. And as you said, then if you have high risk, go and do a DEXA scan. And if you have yeah. high visceral fat, then there are a lot of intervention yes. what you can do in order to manage this uh, high risk for visceral fat and maintain it in a low level. Okay, yeah. what is next? Yeah, so uh, just to speak to that a little bit. So the way we think about uh, these genetic insights and all the ones that will come up in the, in the coming years is basically a roadmap. So what you just described, a road in your health span journey that you can that you can explore that you didn't know about before that leads you to a better health span somewhere down the road. And knowing your predisposition, whether it's average or high, um, especially if it's high, it's, it's at least starts a thinking process for, toward in that direction, toward more informed optimization of, of your wellness. Um, 
another one, let's say, uh, no, let's say muscle weakness. So that, that's a that's an age age related muscle weakness. That's going to be uh, a score uh, that's uh, a bit of a late onset. So this is a score based on uh, an elderly population above sixty or so. Um, where, uh, but again, polygenic score are something that can be determined at birth. It's not something that changes over time. So if you know your predisposition to muscle weakness at say 45, you're not exactly at that point where it might be expressing itself. But if you're at a higher risk for having muscle weakness in, in older age, you might think about having, uh, um, an increased amount of uh, resistance training or type any, any type of, um, muscular endurance or strengthening exercises to make sure that as you age, you maintain your muscle strength and reduce your risk of frailty and falls and being able to maintain your balance as you age. Those are not things that think we think about, you know, in our thirties and forties and maybe even fifties, but as we age, if we do have the genes and I should say those, the genetics behind muscle weakness in old age are distinct from the continue, the genetics of continuous muscle strength in overall in, in the entire population. So it's not like if you score high on another score that we have, which is hand grip strength, that's, that's a new score that we also have. If you score on high on hand grip strength, which tells you um, that maybe you have better genetics for having uh, a stronger muscles, that doesn't mean that as you age, uh, you, you can't score differently on the other score because th those genetics are distinct. Okay. Yeah. Um, any questions? So, so, yeah, yeah. A comment about that. So, uh, muscle uh, strength is uh, extremely important when you get older because uh, I'm sure that you know that, Bartek, but uh, hopefully our, uh, our audience know that uh, the majority of deaths of uh, old age is uh, basically that uh, the old person fall, uh, break his hip, and then, uh, or other bones, and then uh, uh, it's amazing that uh, the survival curve of a year after uh, breaking your uh, hip is maybe more than 50% of the population that uh, break the hip at the age of 65 plus are uh, not surviving a year after. And, That's an incredible uh, statistic. Uh, it, it yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. And uh, again, if you know your risk and you know that, you yeah. can uh, basically build your muscle. And if you build your muscle, first you have better balance. So less likely that you will fall if you, uh, if you lose your balance because you have better balance. And second, yeah. if you fall, then you have uh, more muscle to protect your bone. So you have a, a lower risk to break the bone. And if you break the bone, still you have better a, a, a muscle to recover. So that's yeah. something that is no-brainer. If you know that, it's it's the best sign that you have. Start going to the gym and build your muscle. It's not a it's not a rocket science. So it's it's it is an amazing, and uh, I yeah. I will uh, strongly strongly recommend everyone to test and yeah. see whether they have high risk. Yeah, yeah, and and just to clarify, um, while the two traits are not entirely independent, they're intertwined. Meaning muscle mass and strength, they tend to go hand in hand. But if you were to choose one that's more important for health span and longevity, it would be strength. So the person who is light on their feet and is strong for per pound of their body weight, so meaning they're strong for their body weight, uh, will probably do better than somebody who's very muscular but not as strong for for their size. So sarcopenia is another you know another uh, uh, danger of uh, of aging, um, and that's. Uh, that's a kind of a complex 
phenotype that includes, you know, frailty, loss of muscle mass and strength um, as well. Excellent. So what other uh, uh, scores do you like in uh, our... So, well, uh, so maybe along, along a similar vein is in bone mineral density, because um, bone mineral density is something that's it's very known to be a high risk factor for fractures. And so if we do, if you go with that example of a person, elderly person falling, if they have a higher bone mineral density and they're not osteoporotic, they're less likely to fracture something. Um, and how do you build bone mineral density? physical activity, loading the bone throughout your lifespan and resistance exercise. So this is, uh, that's a very important one. And if somebody scores and say they're in their forties and fifties, um, and they score low on bone mineral density, that's another one that can, uh, help propel a person to go get a DEXA scan because they may not be falling yet because they're young and there's a lot of compensatory mechanisms for preventing falls and you still have pretty good, your brain has good reaction time, good processing speed. Once that's not there <clears throat> and you trip and you're not able to, you know, essentially control your movement and you, you know, and you fall and your, your BMD bone mineral density is low, you know, you're, you're more likely to fracture something and then have serious complications. And yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, uh... Again, it's going to the DEXA. So the DEXA scan is, is an amazing scan that can, you can find so much information by a, a lying on the machine for five minutes and receive a, a very low radiation, which is something that I, I also highly recommend to everyone that yeah. wants to live a, a, a longer, better. Uh, it's a, and it's also not expensive. I have done it and it's cost me like, I know, 100 bucks or something like that. It's not crazy. Uh, yeah. A few, yeah. a few visits to Starbucks and you cover the, or you save a few visits to Starbucks and you, you already uh, get the information. And it's, and it's also like blood tests. It's very important to have a reference. So like uh, we're talking about blood tests. It's very good for you to have the baseline and then to have the, bo uh, the follow-up. And then you know, my bone mineral density went up or went down. My uh, uh, visceral fat went up or down. Uh, my muscle tone went up or down. That's all of that you can get from uh, DEXA. So do it as early as you can and then continue to do it every few years and you will have a very good reference to see whether you are in the right trend or in the wrong trend. Oh. I think I'm sold, Gil. I'm, I'm going to make an appointment today. Okay. Great. Um, um, yeah. Um, maybe we'll switch gears and go to chronotype now. Um, so, so that's, so, uh, specifically we, we now have a polygenic score, uh, to help determine your, your genetic predisposition to being a morning person. So, um, a lot of epidemiological studies have identified morningness, meaning, uh, the people who are these so-called morning larks, they get up early, get their stuff done early, uh, perhaps exercise early. They have, um, better help, more helpful behaviors, um, in, including, uh, less predisposition to some metabolic conditions like type two diabetes and such, but also may choose, um, healthier foods, uh, whatever the mechanism behind that is, it hasn't been really elucidated, but in general, morningness tends to, um, align with more kind of healthy traits than, and being an evening person. And there's, there is, you know, there's some controversy, not necessarily controversy, but there is some conversation around whether it's the morningness or is it misalignment? And those are kind of tricky things to answer, but the large body of evidence points to um, being a morning person 
uh, aligning more with the natural circadian rhythm of the sun is more helpful for for your health span um, than you know perhaps uh, being a shift worker or a night yeah. shift worker or something. Uh, while your body will entrain on any circadian rhythm you throw on it, and especially if you do it consistently, your body will adjust. Your enzymes, your 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 clock genes will adjust, but it doesn't mean that in the longer term you won't be more predisposed to type two diabetes or obesity, or, you know, again, those, some of those behaviors that, uh, may predispose you to, uh, eating more, you say processed foods or snacking more, et cetera. Yeah. And I would add to that, that, that is, yeah, I would add to that, that, uh, on top of all the health uh, information that I completely agree with you. There is also some uh, behavioral information that is important to know. For example, I'm a morning person, so I'm not making a, a, an important decision at 9 p.m. Or I'm not a, a studying or a trying to learn something at 9 p.m. I, I know that it's uh, the time that is better for me to do it, I know, at 7 to 10 a.m. So that's the, the time that I'm dedicating more to study or to learn or to make an important decision. I think that knowing whether you're a morning person or evening person can allow you to know what is the best time of the day for you to make an important decision or to learn a new subject or to uh, focus on the thing that you really want to focus on. So I think that it's another uh, a value point that uh, uh, you can use when you know whether you're a morning person or an evening person. Yeah, on that note, there's actually some, say, moderately weak to moderate evidence that the same goes for uh, exercise and endurance training. So uh, endurance athletes who are morning, they're, uh, they're more likely to get more performance benefits if they actually align with their morning training uh, versus, you know, in the evening. And same thing for people who are evening types. Um, there may be a different dynamic there uh, where they may actually have less benefit by uh, trying to train in the morning. But I don't remember that there's a little bit of evidence there that aligning your training with your chronotype can be beneficial. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I didn't know that. Thank you for letting me know. That's exciting. Again, not okay, really strong evidence, but it would have yeah. to be determined on a end of one basis for every person. Yeah. 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 No, but it's it's good to know. So what is the the next one? Uh well, maybe we can transition to maybe longevity. Um Okay. Uh, so we have a score. Uh, that's basically was determined, uh, looked at about a million individuals, um, and look at the continuous lifespan in these individuals. And, uh, there was a score, uh, there were variants that were identified that, um, explain some pathways behind cellular differentiation, resistance to stress. Um, some of the classic kind of longevity genes like APOE, uh, were identified there as well. But then there was an independent study who actually took some of those variants and in an independent cohort, they used those variants in the form of a polygenic score and they were able to discriminate between centenarians and normal old people. And they also were able to identify younger individuals who would live longer. Um, and so that was a really nice um, a framework for us to start with, to start building a, a longevity score because the validation was already performed for us. So we weren't tapping into a discovery GUS and hoping, uh, since we can't measure longevity in our users, we were able to use another study that used the exact same variants from the other study. 
uh, to have a, a validated score that explains something like if a user scores, uh, say, in the lowest percentile, they may have a lifespan, uh, not accounting for any environmental or lifestyle factors. Their baseline lifespan might be about five years, three to five years less than the person who scores at the very upper limit, the fifth, upper fifth percentile, which is very, very rare. Um, so again, this would tell a person uh, at baseline uh, what what your per, uh, potential for longevity is, uh, not accounting for your lifestyle. For example, you can modify that through lifestyle. Uh, so if if you wouldn't, you shouldn't be concerned if you score low, because if you're you know an inside tracker user, you're most you're most likely actually modifying your risk toward somewhere in the middle. Um, for, for that score. Yeah, but but uh, is it fair to say that someone that scores low for lifespan should work a bit harder than someone that scores high for lifespan? Yes. Is it fair to say it? Yeah, it's fair to say because like any other polygenic score, those scores don't just capture the direct trait that we're trying to measure. They capture a lot of pathways and a lot of biology. To, to, to go back to chronotype, for example, a lot of the variants behind chronotype are uh, in the clock genes like period one, period two, cry one, cry two, BMO. Uh, there is actually, and those are uh, those are um, those are proteins that are expressed heavily in the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is a center in your brain that detects photons through your retina. There is like uh, retinal ganglion cell variants that speaks to maybe there is some kind of uh, genetic variants that modify the communication between the retina and the brain, how it detects light, and that can then determine sleep timing and chronotype. And so going back now to lifespan, again, all of these scores, they have a lot of biology, biology behind them. So um, yeah, really, it, really, it's important to pay attention to um, where you score on those scores. Yeah. So, so basically, again, so far, I, I, may, I want to summarize the intermediate summary to say those scores can give you a lot of information based on your genetic that you can act upon. And we already discussed a few of them and they gave a few examples what you can do. So it's not like just a score that it's, it's not a, 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 a just information. It's also an information that you can act upon and basically be ready and prepare for uh, your uh, 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 basically uh, uh, reach to your 100 years, hopefully, based yeah. on all of this information, you know what to focus on. If you have a low a risk for a low uh, a bone mineral density, you need to work on that. If you have a risk for a high visceral uh, fat, like me, and it sounds like yourself, we know what to do yeah. in order to, to work on that. So we are giving you some... Uh, information that you can act upon and hopefully that will help you to beat your genetics and yes. live better long. Yeah, agreed. Okay, good. So let's continue. What is next, Botek? Um, so uh, along sort of, sort of longevity traits, um, and so I'll take my time explaining this one. Um, we have another score that tells you about your predisposition to epigenetic age acceleration. Um, so there are um, some of some of uh, your listeners probably have maybe on this podcast heard about epigenetic age, and that's yeah, we, an we discuss it. Yeah, we discuss it with uh, uh, in a few episodes. So yeah, they, okay, but uh, it will be good for you to repeat it because it's uh, complex, even so that we discuss it a few times. Yeah, um, so it's it's a measure of your so-called biological age. So 
we all know our chronological age. Uh, most of us know our chronological age these days. We know when we were born. We know where the calendar is at this point. So that determines our chronological age. But as we know, uh, people age at different rates. And there are various different ways, including inside trackers, inner age, to measure your so-called uh, biological age, which is um, as sort of your inner age, like uh, what your biology is doing, uh, regardless of where you are on, on the timeline in terms of, you know, objective time. And uh, one way to another biological age measure that's been really well characterized by now is the, is via the uh, chemical modification of DNA. So methylation are these so-called methyl groups at different points, of specific points on the DNA molecule that could change the way the DNA is read. And so what that can do when, when the DNA code is read, the methylation can either increase gene expression or lower gene expression or structurally change the DNA in such a way that something different happens in the way your genes are expressed. Um, and so... Those kind of modifications have been correlated to um, uh, uh, biological age, meaning a less a lower occurrence of chronic diseases, for example. So a person who has an epigenetic age uh, that is, say, a person is 35, um, and they're um, and they say they're a smoker, uh, they are a lifetime smoker, even though they're 35 it's very likely that their biological age via methylation will be higher than 35. Because um, smoking is a really well-established risk factor for increasing, I would, I, would, I would venture to say any biological age metric out there, whether it's blood-based or DNA-based or methylation-based. Um, and But, so, uh, we are not measuring methylation at InsideTracker. Uh, one of some, there are different, different, these, there are different methylation clocks that are um, represented in the literature. And there is one uh, specific called intrinsic epigenetic age that's actually been found to be quite heritable. Um, and so when something is heritable, that means you can look at the genetic variants that explain that heritability and you can develop a genetic predisposition to increased or decreased epigenetic age acceleration. Um, and so actually epigenetic age is actually at birth, it's about 100% heritable because if you look at twins, they're going to be 100% same methylation. As, as you go uh, further into a, a person's age, in your 40s or something, uh, or as an adult, your epigenetic age is still around 40% heritable based on broad-based heritability in, in twin studies. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very good candidate for having a polygenic score. Um, and that is what Inside Tracker has uh, developed, a polygenic score for uh, having a predisposition to increase or decrease epigenetic age acceleration. Um, so it's another, it's a, it's a measure of um, using that spe specific way of measuring biological age. It's your predisposition for that particular um, age acceleration metric. Okay. I probably wasn't very clear, so maybe you can you can help me. Uh... No, no, no. It it, it was clear. Is so it? so the the bottom line is uh, there are a few different kind of clock that uh, can uh, uh, predict uh, your longevity. Some are uh, similar to what Insta Tracker and what we have is the uh, inner age. So it's a blood based clock. Other are uh, epigenetic clock based on uh, methylation. 
other that uh, look at uh, uh, glycanase, so basically other modification, uh, some other that uh, looking at telomer lengths. And uh, what uh, Bartek and his team found is that uh, there is a correlation between uh, uh, your genetic uh, composition and uh, a specific clock that is based of epigenetic uh, uh, clock. And that's what you, uh, you are doing here. You are basically allowing a user in a way to, to predict what will be their uh, epigenetic clock based on their genetics. Uh, that's fair to say? That's, that's okay. fair to say. Yeah. And, and if we were to, for, uh, for some of your listeners who are inside tracker users, if you were to put the three aging metrics we discussed just now, that being the lifespan score, the epigenetic age predisposition and inner age in context, the, the lifespan score would be like your background, polygenic background for having a particular lifespan, your, your uh, epigenetic age predisposition is your predisposition to a specific aspect of aging that's highly modifiable. So of, if you compare the lifespan score to the, to the epigenetic age score, uh, the latter is a lot more modifiable by exercise, et cetera. And then when you, have, when you look at inner age, which is based on blood biomarkers, that's a real-time readout of the direction you're going uh, in terms of your biological age. Um, so that we can kind of look at it, those three in that context. Okay. What other scores do, do we have in our uh, new scores? Cognitive aging. Um, so we have a polygenic score that, uh, estimates a person's predisposition to, uh, d decline a cognitive ability, uh, through most of, uh, most of the lifespan. Um, so. Uh, that again, that, that kind of score, again, you may not be worried about it when you're in middle age or, or, you know, still in your fifties or something, but if you score higher, uh, you might want to think about, pay attention to, you know, some way to intervene in terms of, uh, well, some of the same, uh, health span interventions like exercise, oxygenating your brain through exercise, healthy diet, but also some cognitively demanding tasks, like, you know puzzles or they have uh, very specific apps to help prevent cognitive de decline. If you score, you know, it's particularly high on that score, you may want to take some extra prevention steps because mental health is incredibly important for, for health span because what does it matter if you have low LDL and low APOB if you're not experiencing life in a, in a positive way? Yeah, I agree. I, that, this one is uh, huge and we know that a lot of, uh, uh, cognition-related diseases uh, or brain-related diseases are uh, correlated uh, very strongly with your age. So you get older, you have a much higher chance to have them. So finding it early and uh, intervening with the intervention that uh, Bartek you just mentioned can be uh, can make a lot of difference. So it's again very good to know early and uh, know what to do. Um, and last and certainly not least, uh, is we have a score for our women users and that pertains to, uh, the propensity to have an earlier menopause as, as many women and they're kind of know from family history, menopause is quite heritable. So if, if, if a mom, you know, a grandma had early menopause or late menopause, that kind of tends to run in family. So that's a clue that 
it's actually amenable to having a polygenic score and be able to predict, try to predict a, a woman's predisposition. And that's an important one because women who may go into menopause early uh, tend to have and do have low, less estrogen exposure in their lifespan. And estrogen is very important for bone health, particularly to prevent osteoporosis and some other health conditions. So that's an important, especially for women who are still premenopausal, you know, if they are scored as having a slightly higher elevated predisposition to have early menopause, it can help them start a conversation maybe with family members, their physician to think about the types of things that are possible to do to help ensure, you know, that, you know, to ensure that you, you uh, may help modify uh, the slightly increased risk. Okay, yeah, and that's uh, uh, definitely uh, super important for uh, um, our audience, especially the uh, young audience that uh, uh, would like to know uh, when they will have uh, or predict when they will have uh, menopause and maybe it will help them with uh, uh, a family planning. So definitely true, uh, an, another good uh, score to to have in our uh, a new uh, panel and uh, yeah, I would just add to that because we don't necessarily would be able, uh, it's still a, uh, any of these polygenic score, it's a probabilistic estimate. It's not something that will tell you you should have kids early. It's not at all diagnostic. So it's a conversation starter. If you do score, you know, at a particular risk category, let, let's say that you should start thinking about um, looking into it. Um, and I think that uh, about that, all the... Uh... Uh, scores that uh, you and your team added are uh, uh, amazing and uh, I, I think that everyone that uh, would like to live uh, better longer uh, should test them and know and uh, based on that know how to build this uh, plan for a uh, uh, rich 100 hopefully um, so I think that that's an, a, an amazing addition to the InstaTracker uh, uh, solution um, and I want to uh, conclude our uh, discussion uh, by asking you a question about what is the tip that you would like to provide to our uh, listener about uh, how to live uh, a better longer? Ooh, um, I would say to the extent that you're able, uh, try to track as much as you can in terms of your health parameters, be it your heart rate, um, your blood biomarkers, if you can, DNA is obviously, as we talked about here, very important to give you uh, a lot of biological context. Um, uh, of course, um, if I were to choose one intervention, it would be vigorous physical activity. Not to be forgotten is uh, having a, a good amount of social support, creating strong bonds in a community is very important. And yeah, if, if you can do, do those things and obviously don't eat junk, um, diet is also important. Um, so those would be kind of the pillars of, of health span that, you know, going forward, I think are important. Yeah. So, uh, but that was a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for, uh, uh um, cleaning your, uh, calendar and, uh, spending, uh, an hour plus with us and, uh, discussing, uh, your work and, uh, I'm really proud of what you and your team uh, made, and I think that it's a, it's an amazing addition to the Insta Tracker community to 
understand better their genetics and part of our vision or mission to combine blood and DNA and the physiological marker together and the intersection between them. Um, and uh, very exciting. And uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us. And uh, I hope to host you again in the next release of the new exciting uh, uh, features that uh, you and your team will have. Thank you so much, Botek. Thanks, Gil. Looking forward to it. I had, a, I had a blast talking to you, and thank you so much for the kind words. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker, a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit InsideTracker.com slash podcast.